Pro Se, Lafayette 60's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. This week is our special Supreme Court episode, and we'll be spending the entire show talking about the high court. First, we're going to break down the most recent term, and then we're going to have some guests on to talk about exclusive interviews they've done with two of the court's powerhouse women. Senior reporter Jackie Bell will join us to talk about her time sitting down with Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And then we'll be joined by senior reporter Ed Beeson, who had the opportunity to interview Justice Sonia Sotomayor. As always, I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. So part of what we want to get to, I think, is just a lot of quick hits about what this term meant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I want to. I mean, I'll. You're you're the real SCOTUS nerd in the room. I do love and I it. Just, well, like, let's 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 start really big picture stuff. So, you know, when the when legal scholars crack open the dusty tomes in the future, <laughs> like, what are what are they going to think about this this session that we just that we just saw? I think the kind term for this most recent session was workmanlike. I mean, they, yeah. they sounds they, like a nice euphemism. Well. You know, I don't want to undersell what they did this term. They issued some um, opinions that will have very broad impacts within discrete areas. Mm-hmm. Like there were some big IP cases. There was some interesting immigration stuff. But they didn't have one of those terms that all of America is sitting around thinking, mm-hmm. when will the same-sex marriage decision come yeah. down? When will they yeah. decide on health care? It wasn't those hot-button, everybody's-watching mm-hmm. moments. Okay. I mean, can you can you identify, like— I know there were like some trends we talked about that we could trace. Yeah, I mean, I I think a little bit what I alluded to there with taking off IP and immigration. I mean, I know I talk about this a lot on the pod anyway because they're areas I really like. But they really did feature large uh, on the Supreme Court term this year. Mm -hmm. IP, for example, it made up over 10% of the court's docket this year. And that's huge. I mean, that was a much larger proportion than usual. Yeah. So – those cases also drew most of the amicus briefs that were filed. And the other thing is that they continue to trend where it, like, it's a thing that people in patent law are, are talk a lot about. But the fact that the Federal Circuit cannot win when they go they to the, the Supreme Federal Court. <laughs> it's, um, I was talking to Ryan before we went on the air, but um, that it's, it's, it's been years of this happening. But this year was very much in the same, in the same trend. And it was uh, six of the seven... Federal Circuit cases that went to the Supreme Court were overturned. The Sorry, only Federal Circuit. The only the uh, pop quizzes. Which one yeah. <laughs> bill did they uphold? The one in my beat. <laughs> nice. That's right. Yeah, uh, yeah the the um, slants Redskins uh, ruling was actually affirming the. Uh, but that but that wasn't an issue of uh, of intellectual property law. It was a First it was Amendment first question, Amendment, which right. they love. So. But so anyway, uh, Amber, what else? you mentioned immigration, I think, right? I did. Yeah. Um, it was another big term for immigration. So we talked on the podcast last week with senior reporter Alyssa Wickham about the travel ban being something they're going to hear next term. Mm-hmm. So they did that, which was splashy. They also had two immigration cases that presumably they were 4-4 ties. I mean, we don't know that for sure. But they got bumped to rehearing in the next term. So that's mm-hmm. three big things. But that's really not the whole story of it. They decided seven other immigration cases. Wow. So it was just a huge part of what they tackled this year. Um, they were a little all over the map. Some things they were pro-immigrant, some things they were more government restriction mm-hmm. upheld that. Just as an example, one of the big ones was a case that held that U.S. citizens cannot lose their citizenship yeah. because of immaterial lies oh, made right. during a naturalization application. Like super minimal things, right? Yeah. 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 So um, that also kind of gives you a sense of that is a big ruling in the world of immigration. Mm-hmm. It's it's a very technical, specific thing that doesn't apply broadly. And mm-hmm. that is really the story of this term. It was big things 
for specific areas. Right. Well, and somewhat on that tick, we had, I think I saw in one of our stories, there was a lot of, there's a lot of unanimity on the court, right? We hear yeah. it's, a, it, it, it's a, it's a halcyon time for partisan <laughs> bickering, but, not, was, but not at the high court this time. Not this time. <laughs> um, so we crunched the numbers here at Law 360 and they voted unanimously 55% of the cases this term. That's a big difference. It's up from 45% last term. Wow. Okay. Interesting. So, okay. So we've been talking about workmanlike is the, is the term we're using, but, um, <laughs> I mean, were there any big ones that we can report out? Yeah, I mean, like I said, there's no, like, the nation is watching this. Right, right. Yeah. But we, it wasn't a total snooze. There was some good stuff. Um, just to tick off a couple, in the world of IP, there was one about uh, limiting design patent damages, and that came up in um, uh, the the war between Apple and Samsung. Yeah, so, the iPhone wars. Yeah, yeah, so they threw out a $400 million damages award that Apple had won against Samsung mm-hmm. and said that Samsung's penalty for infringing on that smartphone design patent could be limited to just components of the phone. Mm-hmm. So, again, it's a technical ruling, but that was a, a largely watched series of cases between two huge companies and has a lot of impact. It was a big deal, yeah. Yeah. And the other thing for the patent bar then the TC Heartland, right? When the You you've gotten to my next one that I just <laughs> yeah. I can't believe we haven't talked about it on the pod I know. so far because I've spent so much of my time this year thinking about <laughs> yeah. this. So here's what TC Heartland was. Troll ruling. Yeah. It's yeah. a it's a patent case that was all about patent venue. So about 45% of patent cases filed in district court were filed in the Eastern District of Texas. It's so prevalent that it's become almost a joke. <laughs> well, it's, right. it's insane if you hear that. Like, I write about IP, so I know about this. But it's just such a – to explain to someone that forty, nearly half of patent cases in America are filed in a tiny little part of Texas. And that's the key thing you just said there, a tiny little part of Texas. It's um, – I don't know. I've never actually been to Texas, fair disclosure there. But in following patents closely, I know it's – a just a very rural, small mm-hmm. little part of Texas where these courts are. They've developed this specialty for it. So essentially what TC Heartland was, not actually about Texas, but this is that's Texas' Indirectly. impact. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the case was about where you can bring patent suits, where proper venue is. And the court did something pretty surprising. They limited venue um, significantly. So now we're seeing a big tide turn there. Ryan Davis that you mentioned before, our senior mm-hmm. patent reporter, just wrote this week a story about the first month since this ruling. And the numbers bear out that now Delaware is basically going to be the new Eastern District yeah. of Texas. <laughs> and uh, the numbers have essentially flopped. So Delaware is going to get 40-ish percent. And Delaware used to get about 15. And now Texas is going to get about yeah. 15% of cases. So that's a really big thing in the patent bar. It's Arguably the biggest IP ruling in, in decades. Yeah. So a big thread that we wrote about, covered, watched, everything else uh, this year was that the court was without a justice for a while. Um, and then the appointment and confirmation and everything else that went along with it with the appointment of Neil Gorsuch. Yeah. I've, I've, I'm proposing a, a new segment, one, <laughs> one, one-time segment just for the special Supreme Court, Joe. This is Gore such and such. <laughs> But so, okay, so do, do we have do we have like a takeaway on on you know what his first few months on the on the bench were? Kind of, he was on the bench for about two and a half months mm-hmm. uh, after a lot of political uh, fighting that everybody you know saw, and they forced people to examine questions about you know legacy of the court and the appointment process. Sure. And in in a true sign of the times, the most interesting Supreme Court story was not about anything that was litigated before the Supreme Court this yeah. time. But uh, when he was there, he heard thirteen arguments. Um, he authored only one majority opinion, mm-hmm. and it was yet another unanimous opinion, and there were a lot of well, those we're like talking the about. Term, it was yeah. in a pretty non-controversial case over the scope of federal debt collection laws. Hmm. 
But probably the biggest thing we have to go on in terms of the big question of what kind of justice Neil Gorsuch will be is the alliance that he has made with uh, Clarence Thomas. Alliance. Yeah, I mean, wow. if this is Survivor, they're they're staying on the wow. island for a while. Thomas in, and Gorsuch LLP. Yeah, right. On the <laughs> and and they're staying and they're thriving in the far right sort of pillar of the court. Um, Gorsuch concurred with Thomas on sixteen of the seventeen rulings uh, mm. that he was there for. This was the. The most sort of instructive one of these was a case we talked about, actually, when we did our Gorsuch special, which was about Trinity Lutheran. And that case dealt with the legality of a Missouri state program to resurface playgrounds. They excluded a church from receiving funds under that program. And the justices ruled that that program was unconstitutional by a 7-2 vote. But both Thomas and Gorsuch said, well, you didn't go far enough Hmm. because... The matter there is like resurfacing playgrounds is not a religious activity. Mm-hmm. You denied it to to a religious institution, but the court intentionally shied away. It's like, oh, we're not ready to sort of grapple with whether funds should be given for religious purposes. Right. But Gorsuch and Thomas said there's nothing stopping us from doing that right now. Gorsuch wrote, uh, I don't see why it should matter whether we describe the benefit as, say, close to Lutherans or close to people who do Lutheran things. This is a free exercise violation either way. So we sort of laid down a marker there. That gives a really good sense of what kind of justice he'll be. Well, I mean, if there was shows, any doubt. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, I mean, you know, there were there were people who I mean, people were pretty happy it wasn't Supreme Court Justice Joe Arpaio or something. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, it, it, this is this is pretty this is pretty clear. I mean, you know, the far right sort of Thomas corner of the court. Right. And there yeah. will be there'll be more to there'll be more to see as we as we move ahead and amber as you already noted there are two um pretty uh, pretty high profile immigration cases that they appear to be deadlocked at that uh, of course it's just probably going to go a long way towards resolving well that's a great way to segue into what's going to come next yeah. what we're watching as we uh, move toward the fall i for the first time in a while don't have a case. I cover copyright and trademark law, and I don't really have anything. It's a sad I'm, time for both of you. I don't know whether to congratulate you or like. No, it's uh, sad. It's, uh, a, it's sad. Kind of a bummer. Time. Yeah, right. I mean, it's it's like <laughs> we, fun to have a. And we follow the Supreme Court so closely here yeah. at Law Three Sixty. It's it's a bummer. Yeah, yeah. but so um, uh, Ryan Davis, my colleague who covers patent law, um, mm-hmm. he's got a pretty interesting one about whether the uh, America Invents Act, which has had a very big impact on patent law, whether or not uh, reviews under that law um, are constitutional. So. so it did this thing during T.C. Heartland where I was joking around the office saying, like, I hope the Supreme Court just completely upends patent venue because wouldn't that be great to write about? And now I feel like like this um, kind of evil witch somehow <laughs> yeah. where now I feel a little nervous about being like, what if they upended AIA reviews? Yeah. <laughs> like it for it sounds so nerdy, but for us at Law 360, that would be huge. Big deal. Yeah. yeah. Big deal. And as we've talked about before, we have the travel ban coming on its The travel merits. ban will yeah. be next term. Um we will get the rehearing of those other two immigration cases, so it'll be another big immigration term. Mm-hmm. There's also a big privacy case over whether the Fourth Amendment search and seizure covers y- your cell phone data, which mm-hmm. obviously has um, a lot of implications. And then also, sort of in the in the vein of a big sort of front page type decision that you're talking about that draws the eye of the nation, they will hear the case of the Colorado baker who refused to make a cake for a for a gay wedding. And Mm. that's going to be very contentious because it took almost 20 SCOTUS conferences before they agreed to hear it. So they kept just relisting and relisting that. So um, you can tell that there's a lot of there's going to be a lot of strong debate and sentiment amongst the. It's very old school sort of culture wars kind of thing. Um, So everyone will be will be watching that one. 
Great, guys. Thanks for uh, talking about this. We'll have a lot more to talk about as the term kicks back up in the fall. All right. Absolutely. We're lucky this week to get the inside scoop on a pair of fascinating interviews. Our first guest is Law360 senior reporter Jackie Bell, who had the rare opportunity of interviewing the notorious RBG, otherwise known as Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Welcome, Jackie. Thanks for having me. So I am really interested in what it was like to actually be in the room with Justice Ginsburg. What were your impressions of her? So, I, you know, I think going into this, it was hard not to notice that basically every profile or article or book you read about Justice Ginsburg mentions that she's very petite or very diminutive or, you know, actually provides her height and weight, hmm. <laughs> um, though she's a football player or something, <laughs> um, you know, but... You know, I think in person, you know, what is striking about her is that she is not only very petite, but she's very quiet and still, and she has a very deliberative way of speaking. You know, she really controls the room with sort of a quiet, still presence. You know, she's she's not afraid to take long pauses before she responds to questions. You know, she's not afraid of dead air time. If she needs to stop and think through an answer... You know, that's what she's going to do. That's kind of always been part of the way she, you know, approaches the world and approaches um, some part of her personality. And that makes it kind of awful for a reporter because the last thing we want is dead space because we want to ask a bunch of questions. (laughs) Yeah, we actually wanted to have her on the podcast. We decided not to because we heard she uh, took too many breaks. That's the only reason why. Yeah, 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 that's totally the reason. Um, I mean, you know, I think there is kind of a striking contrast between sort of, you know, this sort of quiet ladylike figure and her, you know, current position on the court, right? Which is sort of defined by her striking defense and her willingness to be oppositional. You know, she's, you know, long been an accomplished litigator. She argued these groundbreaking women's rights cases. So, you know, that you know, all this is kind of part of her story, right? The contrast between her physicality and, you know, her work on the court. So, Jackie, you um, you spoke, uh, you, you got to this a little bit, but, you know, Justice Ginsburg is a feminist icon. Um, did I mean, during during your sit downs with her, did did you get to that to that portion of her legacy of, of you know, why she thinks it's it's important that 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 women are on the court, that that what how she sort of defines her own her own role in, in that story? Sure. I mean, you know, I think she feels strongly that having more than one woman on the court is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she told us that one of the worst times in her tenure on the court was when Justice Sandra Day O'Connor left. You know, she felt that it really, you know, changed the public perception of the court and it contributed to this idea of sort of, you know, only one woman at a time on the court. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think now that, you know, Justices Sotomayor and Kagan are there, you know, as she put it, the women are all over the bench and that, you know, kind of changes the public perception of, you know, women's role on the court and how important it is. Um, you know, yeah. You know, I think she also feels strongly that different perspectives are important, you know, and that gender diversity on the court is important. You know, having three women as opposed to one is clearly a step in the right direction, you know, 
that diversity is kind of a work in progress on the court. Mm -hmm. So in one of your pieces, you focused a lot on her reaction to oral arguments and sort of what it's what her perception is of people coming before her and and how she handles that part of the job. Um, Do they tend to sway her as she's thinking about a case? Um, I, I think I think they do, but but maybe not in the way one might imagine. Uh, what she told us is that she often comes into oral arguments with her mind pretty much made up. You know, she's read the briefs, she's read the opinions of the lower court, and she usually has a pretty good idea, she said, of what, you know, where she comes down on a particular case, um, and that she usually doesn't, you know, an oral argument usually doesn't change her mind. But what can happen, she said, is that kind of in the back and forth and the question and answers, you know, a path to consensus can open up. It can become clear what route the majority can take to an opinion. Um, I think kind of kind of practically what that means is that in oral arguments, sometimes a question of justice might be asking, might actually be aimed at another justice and persuading them rather than, you know, aimed at the attorney who, yeah. who actually has to answer the question. Um so, you know, I think there's there's often more going on in oral arguments than, mm-hmm. than is immediately apparent. This is somewhat related, Jackie. One of my favorite things to talk to judges about, any judge, but particularly a justice, is um, advice that they have for attorneys who argue before them. And if you're, a, you're, if you're an attorney who has ascended professionally to be arguing before the Supreme Court, you've probably, you know, made something of yourself already. But I'm sure she was not without some sage wisdom for... Uh, lawyers who come before her. Can you share any of that with us? <laughs> well, uh, I asked her what, if she had any pet peeves. Okay. Yeah. Um, for, for a more a interesting way to ask that question. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> than I just, <laughs> uh, she used a great word actually. She said, what bugs her the most is when attorneys are imperious. Okay. Um, so that's a funny Me thing too. to imagine. <laughs> um, <laughs> But, but I think really sort of what her advice boiled down to was that oral argument should be a conversation mm-hmm. um, between the justices and the attorneys. You know, it's a back and forth. You know, don't bother memorizing, you know, a whole long big speech because you're not going to get there. <laughs> you know, this is this is an active court for the most part. And before you get most of the way through that first sentence, someone's going to interrupt you with a question. And she really, Um, she really means that too, because your story does sort of outline that she interrupts people really quickly when they start their oral argument. Yeah, I think what was particularly funny for us about that advice is that we do our own analysis of oral arguments every term. Uh, And Justice Ginsburg this term was the justice who was most likely to jump in first with the first question. Um, you know, she doesn't ask the most questions, but she is is most often the one who asks the very first one. So I think that was she knows <laughs> she uh, when she gives that advice, she knows what she's talking about. So I can't um, let the this uh, conversation go without asking a question that a lot of people have asked <laughs> before. She's the oldest justice that's sitting on the bench. Did you get any indication from her whether or not she's considering retiring? <laughs> so, so Justice Ginsburg always says the same carefully phrased thing these days when she's asked about retirement. Uh, she just says she's going to do the job as long as she can do it full steam. That's her phrase, full steam. 
um, and that, you know, she's still able to do it full steam now and she'll just kind of take it as she, as it comes. Um, that's the answer we I, give I here I'm, on the podcast too. We'll just keep doing it as yeah. long as we're full steam. <laughs> I mean, obviously there's much more to it than that. Um, you know, no, I don't think anyone thinks that's the full story. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, I think even a few years ago when you guys probably remember when under the Obama administration, there was all this talk that she should retire when President Obama was still in office so he could appoint her successor. Um, even then, you know, she said in an interview, I think, with Elle magazine that, you know, President Obama couldn't appoint anyone who was like her either <laughs> because, you know, that person would never be confirmed um like the the congress that was sitting at the time so you know i think she's pretty determined to stay and you know particularly under the current administration you know as we all know she said some some fairly uh dramatic and disparaging things about president trump during the campaign which she has since apologized for and refused to comment further on since um right so I, I think most people who watch the court closely think it's it's extremely unlikely that she would step down voluntarily uh, under the current administration. Well, thanks, so. Jackie, for being with us and bringing all this insight. It's really nice to hear what it was like in the room with her and in person. So we really appreciate the insight. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Jackie. Thanks. Our next guest also had the good fortune of having a one-on-one with another U.S. Supreme Court justice. We're joined by Ed Beeson, a senior reporter who sat down with Justice Sonia Sotomayor. Welcome, Ed. Thanks for having me. So one thing we talked about when we um, chatted to Jackie Bell about Justice Ginsburg is how important Justice Ginsburg considers diversity on the court and how happy she was to have some additional women join the court with her. So did Justice Sotomayor also bring this point up when you talked with her? She did. So I asked her about, um, you know, kind of her thoughts on, on diversity in the court in light of uh, you know, President Obama's uh, legacy in this area of uh, appointing, uh, you know, really broadening the bench in terms of uh, uh, appointing uh, Hispanics and African-Americans and women and uh, LGBT people to the court. And she kind of uh, came back to me and, and, and sort of tweaked my question a little bit by saying, you know, I, I don't think of diversity in these kind of narrow lines that you do. Um, uh, and, and How dare sa- you think it's just women? <laughs> yeah, well, not, not just women, but, you know, uh, you know, racial minorities and, uh, you know, and, um, um, LGBT and whatnot. But, you know, she said, I think I think of it more also in terms of, you know, your professional background, your your religious background, your educational background. She, you know, she kind of pointed out to the fact that the Supreme Court right now is, you know, there's uh, there's five Catholics, three Jews, and one uh, one Protestant, and that's not a lot of religious diversity when you, mm-hmm. you know, think about all the things that come before them, um, i.e., Muslim ban. Uh, Muslim travel ban, I should say. Uh, um, you know, she obviously didn't say that, but uh, you know, but you know, but she she kind of went on to say, you know, there, you know, like you know, you know, there's not a single. Um, it's not some binary thing, right? Right. Yeah. yeah it's not. You know. Um, but you know, she said, you know, when you think about the professional uh, diversity background, you know, there's not a single uh, justice that's been a criminal defense lawyer, and she said, uh, you know, after that, you know. There's something seriously lacking when we are being asked to monitor such large sections of our society and issue rulings that affect people so profoundly that 
you know, when no one on the court is ever practiced in those areas. Um, I thought, you know, that was a, that was a very interesting point. Let's uh, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about sort of the way that she goes about being a justice. She's developed a reputation for asking lots of questions during oral arguments and being very very persistent in her analysis. Um, did you talk with her about why that's the case and how she sort of developed this this strategy? Sure. Um, so this you know this question came came about. Um, you know, in response to a study that Law 360 did uh, about a year ago that, that found that, that Justice Sotomayor was uh, speaking a lot more in, uh, following the death of Justice Anthony Scalia. And um, you know, on that point, she said that, uh, you know, Justice Scalia was a, uh, obviously a very verbose when it came to oral arguments. He, you know, spoke a lot. And, and when he died unexpectedly, there was kind of uh, there was a lot of silence it's there. There's a vacuum to fill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and and she just instinctively just kind of jumped in and filled it. And um, but you know when it comes down to sort of her manner on the court, um, you know she says I'm I'm very inquisitive, and uh, and she recognizes this the fact that she can come off as is fairly intimidating. Um, and but she says I you know I'm not doing this to intimidate. Uh, counsel, I'm really, you know, there's just something that they're saying to me that doesn't make sense, and I'm trying to make them make sense to me. Um, another point on why she asks so many questions is she she credits it really back to her years as a, as a district court judge, and she said to me that, you know, when you're the queen of your own courtroom or the king of your own courtroom, it's kind of hard to share. Yeah. <laughs> So sticking with the concept of, of oral arguments, your story mentioned a, um, a study that showed that, that male justices interrupt female justices um, three times more often than they interrupt each other. Um, could you sort of, for the listener, you know, explain what Justice Sotomayor said about that, about that study and about that sort of phenomenon? And any advice she has for podcast hosts that work with a couple of guys? <laughs> hey, whoa. <laughs> Ouch. All right. All right. You guys are fine. But yeah, what did she say about men interrupting women? Well, she gave no advice. But uh, but she uh, you know, I asked her about this study, uh, which made some headlines back in April. And um, and she said, you know, she you know, she she doesn't really notice it because it's just kind of a way of life. And oh, that's so depressing. And women in every profession uh, know this and experience it. Uh, and and she said that her clerks tend to point it out to her more than she even notices it. Uh, that you know they will point out when she's been interrupted. And, mm-hmm. and uh, um, but you know so she said she didn't really you know, you know pay much attention. But she said after this study came out or was reported on, um, uh, she did see that Chief Justice Roberts really seemed to be making more of an effort to try to. Uh, you know, restore some civility to oral arguments and to ensure that when someone's when someone's interrupted, that that the uh, you know the the, the quest the line of questioning goes get back to them and uh, and they have their questions answered. As a member of the court's liberal wing, she's obviously in the business of writing a lot of dissents. Can you tell us about her views on the on the importance of writing strong dissents? Yeah. So. She, you know, she said that um, you know, with the sense, she's hoping to reach you know a few few different audiences. That, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's uh, that you know, you know, and I think above all is really just trying to you know 
serve as kind of a you know write something that 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 serves as kind of a clarion call to you know both the majority and and to kind of the broader public and uh, anyone who's watching you know this is why the majority got it wrong and uh, you know in terms of audiences she's hoping to reach I mean she says you know you're always trying to reach you know you, you sometimes you're trying to reach you know the the legislative branch or you know the executive or, or you know someone in some you know uh position of power that you know who can affect change uh where the court hasn't do you have an example of like a of a particularly of, of a situation where that happened from one of her dissents yeah I, I think um one of the ones that she pointed out and I, I suspect she's proud of is is uh, a dissent she wrote not in a, in a, an opinion but in a, a cert denial I think back in 2013. Uh, there was a cert petition that was um, called Woodward v. Alabama. It was a capital punishment case that was brought up to the court. And uh, the court uh, denied it, as, it, as it's wont to do. But uh, it's Justice Sotomayor, uh, along with Justice Stephen Breyer, uh, thought that, that they should have accepted this because this is a case that involved um, what are known as judicial overrides. Um, this was, uh, you know, I guess Alabama at the time had a law saying that judges can override jury decisions in capital punishment cases. Uh, so if a jury says don't execute this person for their crimes they're convicted of, a judge can just turn around and reverse that. And, and she thought this was something that, that was right for Supreme Court review, and she wrote a 19-page dissent on that. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, as the years went by, uh, you know, the, the judicial overrides were, were challenged in two other states where they were active, uh, Delaware and Florida, and eventually were overturned and, I guess, finally— it came, uh, you know, Alabama was the only state to have these. Um, and it, just earlier this year, it passed legislation to to withdraw, you know, to, to end the practice of judicial overrides in the state. And I spoke to someone uh, who follows capital punishment uh, law pretty closely, and, and he said that he gave a lot of credit to Justice Sotomayor for helping to raise attention to this mm-hmm. and, and eventually kind of lead to its end. I love that we can leave it with that because she gets interrupted a lot, but her dissents can really matter. Right. So it's at least a happier place for me yeah. to end this. Thanks for talking to us today, Ed. Sure. Thanks, Ed. Normally at the end of the show, we talk about an offbeat story, but we've been so jam-packed today. I don't think we have time. Too but much I, content. Too much content, but... I want to leave it with, did you guys have a favorite moment from the term? Well, I had my, I mean, I had a very embarrassing uh, clarification that I had to make to a story. Mm. I uh, I wrote in a story, there was the, it was the slants oral arguments. And I wrote that, uh, that all of the justices had uh, voiced skepticism about the position of the government. But we know which one didn't Someone that. immediately commented on the bottom wow. saying, I don't think Thomas weighed in on that. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to write a clarification that was like, an earlier version of this story may have implied that Justice Thomas spoke during oral arguments, which well, he typically does not. Which we all know is untrue. <laughs> <laughs> what you really meant was anybody who did talk. Correct. correct. I, think, I mean, yeah, I think you're to be applauded for your radical transparency there. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, not only did you make the correction, now you're talking about it on the podcast. Now we're bringing it back so, up. So that's you know? good. Yeah. I'm very honest. It's, it's, a, it's a purging of the feelings about that correction yep. is what it is. Definitely. Yep. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Bill, for being with us. Thanks, guys. And Alex, thanks. See you guys next week. If you want to know more about any of our legal developments we've discussed today, check out our website at law360.com backslash podcast. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Thanks, and join us next week.
We have several people to thank for today's show, including producers Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. We'd also like to thank our guests Jackie Bell and Ed Beeson. Contributing reporters this week include Christina Violante, Ryan Davis, and Jimmy Hoover. Music for the show this week comes from Silent Partner and Little Glassman.